The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Um, hit the go live button and we're live. It is Tuesday, August 10th, 5.06 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, we are not allowed to have fun anymore. We have not been able to have fun for 489 days. There was a brief respite in there where we were tricked into thinking we could have fun. But we are allowed to have Seth Magaziner, Treasure of Rhode Island, back on the show. Last scene on the show, episode 38, when we were doing it via Zoom. So this is your first Crowdcast episode. Um, and, uh, yeah, welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's awesome to be back. I have to say at the outset, um, last time you had me on, I did not know anything about this show. I had no idea what this was. I was totally unprepared. This time I've done my homework and Uh I have learned. (laughs) So what I've learned is that this is the 487th episode. So congratulations. And of those 487 episodes, uh, my last visit is the 484th most viewed. So I am the third least popular guest that you have ever had (laughs) on a little fun. And I was trying to figure out like why this would be. And I think it is because I did not bring enough embarrassing pictures of you from when we were younger (laughs) last time that I was on. So I, I think what I need to do. Careful, grasshopper. Careful. Oh my god. <laughs> so hopefully this will help you, like oh. boost my view count. My view oh account. my god. No. I don't know. No, now no. I don't know how to make this screen yes, sharing. Yes, I know stuff, you but, don't. This is what yeah. I'm ending this. <laughs> oh so. my god. Oh, wow, I'm bright red now. Um, just like last time you did that. Um, <laughs> I have I always made faces like that? I think I have. I like uh, on an hourly basis your entire yes. life. <laughs> um, well, it is so good to see you. Um, Genevieve was catching up uh, to basically prep for your um, for you being on the show. And what were yeah. you saying that we were talking oh. about the last time he was on? Well, the last time that you were on, you guys were talking about the CARES Act and how Congress had um, set aside and appropriated some money and that it couldn't be used to address the uh, lost revenue in Rhode Island, but it could be used for direct COVID expenses. Did you ever get that money? (laughs) We did get the money. We did get the money. And we used it actually as a state in some very um, interesting ways. So. You know, like a lot of states, we used it for things like setting up field hospitals and ramping up testing and ramping up vaccinations. But one thing that Rhode Island went big on um, that I had an opportunity to work with now former Governor Raimondo on is we actually put a bunch of that money behind workforce training. um, Because, yeah, we recognized that um, a large percentage of the people who were unemployed due to COVID were people who had no education past high school. Um, Like a huge percentage of the people who were unemployed last year had no uh, education past high school. And we were worried that a lot of those jobs, frankly, weren't gonna come back because in the meantime, employers were automating and doing other things. You know, you go to a a McDonald's or a Burger King now and there are far fewer employees in the stores than there were before and more computer tablets, right? And so, uh, we use it for a lot of things, mostly healthcare related, but Rhode Island was a real leader in using some of that CARES Act money to help pay for workforce training, sending people back to school, making it easier for employers to hire people who were perhaps a little underskilled, but then getting them more skilled so that they could be employable. So um, almost all of that money has now been spent. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I didn't know that. I thought that so, but. I would say that your your fear that people who were less educated were going to have fewer job options was grossly miscalculated, right? I mean, isn't that like isn't that what we just saw out of the jobs numbers? I don't know if that's reflected in Rhode Island 
as well, I mean, I assume, because it's a national kind of number, that it's kind of consistent, but maybe it's not. But, like, I know in New York, like, every single restaurant is hiring every single position. Um, I know in Cape Cod it's the same. Rochester, it's the same. So, like, even just, like, when I'm cherry-picking these places, it just seems like there's just not enough, like, like workforce, like, for everyday staffing. Yeah, so I think there's a few different things going on. One is uh, there is a sort of short-term constraint in the labor market where there are people who uh, are not going back to work for whatever reason. And there's been, I think, a little bit of research that's come out on this, sort of surveying people who are on unemployment and asking why have they not gone back to work yet. The number one reason um, in these surveys is lack of childcare, because a lot of childcare providers have not gone back to regular hours, right? Um, number two is is the extra unemployment stipend that a lot of people are receiving. Um, and then there's a whole host of other reasons. Some people are scared of COVID still for you know legitimate reasons. Other people have decided to make lifestyle changes. Um, but I think the, the consensus, I think, among most serious economists is that that's a temporary phenomenon. And you know, over the next few months as we get into the fall, like the labor market will loosen up a bit and more people will be going back to work. But in Rhode Island, structurally, while we are a wonderful, awesome, arguably the best state in the country, one challenge that we've had historically is that our workforce is less educated than our neighboring states, than Massachusetts and Connecticut in particular. And so even before COVID, we were lagging economically for that reason. And why is hard... that? Is that just because of there's, do you just think it's just like the education, the med ed kind of field out of Boston has like a huge concentration of people, but Providence is like no slouch in terms of education. Yeah. So, you know, our educational attainment, like in terms of like the percentage of our population with a credential or a degree past high school is slightly above the national average, but it's below our regional average. And, you know, frankly, I think it's because we need to do better. Um, you know, Rhode Island, like a lot of the Northeast, we were primarily a manufacturing based economy for a long time. And we were a low end manufacturing economy. Like we didn't make cars, but we made the screws that would go into cars, right? Textiles and yeah, and like, like the mills. Yeah. Exactly. And those jobs left, you know, first to go to the South and then eventually to go overseas. And I think other places like Massachusetts and, you know, Pittsburgh and, um, uh, you know, North Carolina even were sort of faster to retool their education system and retool their economic development programs to transition to modern 21st century industries. And Rhode Island was just kind of late. We just kind of for all through the 80s and 90s just kind of kept doing more of the same and hoping that things would work out. And um, we're starting to do some of the right things, I think, over the last decade, but we're just a generation late in making that pivot. And now we've got some catching up to do. But we've got great potential because it's an awesome place. You've been to Rhode Island. It's We've got great natural beauty and great location and some great anchor institutions and deep cultural heritage. But we need to make smart investments to transition to a 21st century economy. Yeah. What were you going to say, Genevieve? Oh, I was going to ask, have you seen like a more like a substantial pivot towards a hospitality economy? Because I mean, you are a beautiful state. You also have the casinos and all those other things, which are, I think, a major source of revenue for you guys. Is that still a concern? Absolutely. We have a thriving hospitality industry in Rhode Island, and I think there's potential to build it up even more. Um, but you know, not all of those jobs are, are high paying jobs, right? And so that's something that I think the hospitality industry across the country is grappling with right now. Um, you know, in Rhode Island, we just passed a pathway to a $15 minimum wage, which I support. Um, and increasingly, I think uh, the hospitality industry, which tends to be exempted because tipped uh, uh, jobs, jobs where people work for tips are exempted from minimum wage laws in most places. Those are now like less attractive for workers than a lot of the other jobs that are out there. So yes, we've got like great 
a great hospitality industry that I think has a lot of potential to grow, but there's a little bit of a reckoning happening, I think, in how do you have a hospitality industry that can thrive, but also uh, support workers who are trying to work their way into the middle class. Yeah, totally. So I want to pivot a little bit um, because I'm really excited to talk to you about the Facebook suit that you filed, which I've told you. I bet you I... are. So why don't you kind of catch everyone up about like kind of why that you filed this suit and like what your arguments are. Um, I'm I'm still skeptical, but I I'll hear you out. <laughs> yeah. So let me start at the beginning just for the viewers. So one of my jobs as state treasurer is I manage the state pension system, which is the primary source of retirement income for 60,000 public school teachers, nurses, first responders, you know, the people who were literally on the front lines risking their lives to get us through the pandemic. And my job is to protect and expand their retirement security so that when they do retire, um, you know, they're able to pay the bills and live a, a dignified life in retirement. And, you know, stock ownership, ownership of publicly traded companies can be actually a great vehicle for retirement security for middle class and working class people, um, whether it's through a pension system like ours or a 401k or some other savings vehicle. What happens sometimes, though, is that the managers of the companies that we invest in uh, have incentives that do not always align with the owners of those companies, namely the 60,000 teachers and nurses and first responders that I referenced earlier. So at the core of what this situation with Facebook is for us is, you know, this is a sort of a textbook example of managers of a company, the people who run the company, having a different set of incentives and sort of a perverse set of incentives at times that causes them to act not in the best interest of their stockholders, but rather in the best interest of themselves as individuals. So what happened here specifically with Facebook was, and I have to be a little bit careful what I say, but everything that I will say is public information. Um, what happened here specifically was Facebook executives, specifically Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, and, and a handful of others, they failed to adequately protect the privacy of user data. They violated a consent decree that they had signed with the Federal Trade Commission, with the FTC in 2009 and failing to adequately protect user data. They've admitted this. This is not an, an issue of, of um, uh, you know, the, the, the facts are the facts. Because they violated that agreement and they did not take adequate steps to protect user data, they were about to be fined once again by the FTC in 2019. They were negotiating with the regulators that were gonna sanction them. And in the context of those negotiations, they basically said to those regulators, hey, tell you what, you wanna fine us $100 million? We'll make you a deal. You, we will pay you $5 billion instead of 100 million in exchange for you leaving our personal names out of the consent judgment. Like in other words, instead of giving you $100 million of our shareholders' money, we will give you $5 billion of other people's money to protect our personal reputations and potentially shield us from liability, right? And so that's a pretty a clear breach of fiduciary duty. That's a, yeah. well, fair. Okay, sorry. I'm not gonna. I'm. I'm just gonna interrupt you briefly, just to ask a few clarifying questions so far. So, we get the. We get this. So they. They was it that big a delta? Was oh, wow. I can't say delta anymore because then people are gonna yeah. think I'm starting about the coronavirus or shitty airlines or I don't even know what anymore. Um, the. Uh, <laughs> but I meant change. Is the difference? Is the difference between? Um, was it really that big? Was it 100 million to five billion? Because I don't Roughly, remember it yeah. being that big, was it? Okay. Yeah, because you know our our understanding is that there were pretty specific statutory constraints on how much of a fine the FTC was allowed to levy, right? Like a regulator can't 
fine a company an unlimited amount. There's statutory limits. And so depending on how you, you know, interpret those statutory limits, we believe it was around $100 million was the maximum that the penalty could be. Um, And rather than seek, so now the other thing I want to just, and you might not know this, so it's fine if you don't have an answer. I, I, there's so much stuff to always cover with Facebook that I tend to kind of just do whatever it is that I'm working on and keep up with the stuff that I'm working on. And I just like can't pick up all of the other stuff. So I'm a little behind on this and I don't remember all the details, but the, was it just speaking from like the way that you're describing this, what it sounds to me like not having seen what the, what the settlement arrangement was, um, a settlement agreement was, are they, was it just to keep, when you say keep their names out of it, do you mean like they're, they tried to like avoid personal liability? Like they were trying, like there was, the FTC was going to try to pierce the corporate veil in some way and like go after them in their personal capacity, uh, in the personal capacity? Because that would so probably I don't wanna, fail. Yeah. Like, so I don't want to try to assign motives, but the FTC has a number of tools at their disposal, right? They do have the ability to sanction not only companies, but individuals. Um, they have the ability to sanction individuals for doing things like, you know, not acting in, in good faith or, or honoring prior consent agreements, as was the case here. Um, they have the, um, the ability to go so far as to limit um, the ability of individuals uh, to continue to serve in leadership roles at companies um, that have violated the law or violated consent agreements. I don't think that anyone was planning on having you know, them go that far in this case, but you know, we have reason to believe that uh, the original uh, intent of the FTC was uh, to basically call out specific individuals at the company in leadership capacities who um, were directly responsible for violating the 2009 agreement. And so why would those individuals not want to be called out? Well, it could be because they were worried that they would be then opened up to civil litigation from users, right? That could be one reason. It could be that um, you know they just didn't want the bad press or the bad media. I mean, it's natural for public figures in business, like in politics, to be about their public image. Um, but whatever their motivations were, and I don't know what their motivations were, uh, you can't use other people's money, shareholders' money, uh, if you're a manager, just to protect your own reputation when you're the ones that screwed up. Yeah, that's fair. But yeah. like in terms of fiduciary duty and your underlying claim, you're going I mean, one of the parts of your of your suit is going to be have to be that you demonstrate harm. It can't just be they violated the fiduciary duty to no effect, right? Or like yeah. because like right? So like you'd have to show that there was some type of harm. The stock is through the fucking roof. So like how is their long-term how is there how are you going to prove harm that's like that's at the end of, like listen i believe you on all of this stuff it's i haven't as i said i am completely not knowledgeable about this i don't like vouch for any of it but i will re- i'm very interested in reading your have you made your complaint public yet can i link to it or somewhere yeah there's a there's a redacted version of it that's public as of friday yeah okay i can, I can okay. provide that to you yeah okay cool i'm just like i'm just kind of curious because like yeah that's just like that strikes me to be like as also the other thing that i'm curious about and i wonder if you're wondering this genevieve is like why is it why is why i mean i you're very very smart and i love you dearly but why are you guys the first ones to do this or have other states done this already yeah so um yes a couple of questions so a few answers the first is um and how do we show damage right i mean one is uh there's one very clear concrete you know, $4.9 billion worth of damage. That is, you know, a very specific number that is again, shareholder money that was offered up, you know, without our consent. Um, Beyond that, I mean, I do think there's a broader debate that should be had and that needs to be had around, you know, what value may have been harmed uh, through the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the data, um, uh, the, the failure to protect user data. What, what broader reputational damage was done to the company? What broader damage was done to shareholder value from some users saying, you know what, I don't trust these guys anymore, I'm out, right? And granted, that's a much harder number to quantify, Yeah. but it's not nothing, 
right? And one thing that we do know about Facebook users, and you know this, Keith, from your work, is that Facebook users are very sensitive to the privacy of their data. Like back in, you know, around the time of the first consent decree in 2009, when Facebook first had to start, you know, offering uh, the option to opt out of having yes. user data shared with third parties, something like 50 or 60% of users proactively changed their privacy settings. So we know that there is a lot of user sensitivity. Um, you know, uh, we think that we can quantify the damage that was done. Obviously, that's a, a topic that, you know, a lot of good natured people can debate. But at the very least, at the very least, we know that there was $4.9 billion of shareholder money that was offered up for reasons that we believe was inappropriate. I mean, that's a pretty huge, that. that's, I didn't know it was that significant. And so yeah. when you had said this, I thought there was like, I thought if even, frankly, there was a billion, you were going to have a hard case, but that's a pretty large yeah. number. And if that's like, I mean, I don't know. It'll be interesting. Well, okay, so you, yeah, what's and the other to, question? To your other, the other thing. Yeah, to your other, well, your other question was why Rhode Island and why were we first, right? Besides the fact that Rhode Island is generally, you know. Awesome, yes, we know. Awesome. Even though the, you know, the, even though these data privacy issues have been going on for a long time, even though Cambridge Analytica happened in 2015, 2016, um, the actual uh, consent agreement with the FTC uh, did not happen until about two years ago, right? And so that's relatively recent. We um, submitted our first records request, it's called a 220 request, um, just a few months after that. And we had this whole back and forth, um, you know, with Facebook over the last year and a half where, you know, we were asking for documents, they didn't want to provide them. Ultimately, uh, the judge sided with us and compelled them to provide those documents. So, you know, even though the 2016 election and all of the hoopla around that feels like a long time ago, um, you know, the actual consent agreement in 2019 was only two years ago and we've been sort of going back and forth over records since then. So this is still a relatively new thing, I guess is what I would say. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Go ahead, Genevieve. I mean, and perhaps this is the wrong area of law, but I keep thinking, are you at all concerned that they'd be able to justify it as a business decision, like, or, or a, a general business decision? Because I think that there's a significant amount of protection that most companies are afforded to make those, regardless of how large or yeah. extreme in this circumstance the amount of money they offered was yeah you know they were not doing this to protect the reputation of the company right because the agreement that they signed stated very explicitly that the company had violated the prior agreement had failed to take adequate steps to perfect user data like it would be one thing if they were paying a larger fine to protect the reputation of the company then you might have an argument but they weren't doing that they were paying more money more shareholder money to protect their reputations as individuals not the reputation of the company can i ask just generally both of you if yep. if the individual is so synonymous with the company that they were seeking to protect though is that a gray area because like for example i have no knowledge of this but if it was Mark Zuckerberg that they were seeking to protect, he is synonymous with Facebook. So yeah. is is that too great? Oh, it, it, it very much was. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg very much was one of the people who they were seeking to protect. And again, this this is we, we say that very clearly in the unredacted sections of our of our suit. So, um, but no, I, I I do think that I would be I would venture to guess that the average Facebook user would still be a Facebook user if Mark Zuckerberg was not the CEO or was not as publicly linked or was not as high profile a CEO, let's say that. It's not high, as high profile a CEO as he is. Um, so I don't buy the argument that in order for Facebook to have you know, a stellar reputation, that it's more important for you know, Mark Zuckerberg's name to not be included in things like regulatory findings than Facebook the company. I think for the reputation of the company, it's more important that the company has a positive image as opposed to any individual manager or even the founder. Yeah, it's really interesting at what point, and I think I mentioned this on the phone to you, but I've been thinking about it a lot lately and we're far out of my depth in terms of like corporate law and uh, 
which was one of my least favorite classes in all of law school. Um, but the uh, but it is kind of interesting what happens when you have a, po- a CEO who is so poisonous that they become themselves a liability for the company. But in situations like that, you'd have a hostile takeover of the board or something like that, which you can't have in this type right. of scenario because of his unique class structure of like the stock and yeah. his stock ownership. So like, like it just doesn't seem like there's going to, unless you can try to convince him to step down, I don't really actually know how and when you could ever get rid of him. Yeah, and and we're not necessarily trying to do that at this point, to be fair. But oh yeah, I'm just like talking, but, not about but you. I think, I'm talking but I think about you like touched, yeah. I think you touched on a really important point, right? Which is that in a normal situation with a publicly traded company, if there is a CEO or a CEO founder who acts irresponsibly, the shareholders are supposed to have a mechanism to deal with that because the shareholders elect the board, the board hires and fires the manager, sets the compensation of the manager and all the rest. Because of Facebook's dual class share structure, that governance system does not exist. The shareholders do not get to pick who the board of directors is, and therefore the board of directors are not responsive to shareholder issues. Therefore, the only avenue that ordinary shareholders like the nurses and firefighters and teachers that I represent, the only avenue that we have to fight for our rights and to be heard is the legal avenue because we don't have the conventional avenue of petitioning a board of directors or or, or electing new board members um, to represent us. This is the only avenue that we have. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely true. And that's been, I mean, that is, and that's more than even users have because users don't have like, for a lot of these, um, for, I mean, for, for decisions that aren't fiduciary, for, mm-hmm. for, for content decisions, as, you know, as we've talked about before, they have no avenue whatsoever. Um, now, this is super interesting. I'll be, what are, where did you guys file this? Did you file in like um, federal court? In Delaware. Court? Yeah. yeah. Oh, in Delaware. Sorry, no, in, Cal- Cal- sorry, no, in California. California, oh. excuse me. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's why I was like, wow. Yeah, no. Okay. Um, yeah. I was, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, interesting. That'll be kind of, that'll be fun to watch. Keep us posted. Um, so we should probably start going to questions, but, um, there was something else that, wait, you were telling me something that you did. You said that they, you changed the name of Rhode Island. Did you actually, was that a joke? Since the last time you had me on the show, I, I am not the treasurer of Rhode Island and Providence plantations anymore. I'm just the treasurer of Rhode Island. My title is much shorter now than it was a year ago. Did you, act, did you actually have that in a fucking business card, Seth? Uh, no, I don't think we ever had it in our business card. <laughs> like, okay. And I will say, I did remove, I did remove Providence Plantations from all of our office documents before, even before the voters voted to take that step. Very but. forward thinking of you. <laughs> no, I actually think that's great. Um, it's kind of crazy that there's just all of these like vestigial tales of history on like on like you know like these confederate monuments we've walked by for for forever and never noticed or like haven't thought much about and it's great that i think that we're updating a lot of these kind of these things um yeah i think that no it was an interesting i mean obviously with um you know everything that happened last summer and you know the rising awareness of structural racism in our society there were a lot of issues that need to be tackled the criminal justice system and the economic system and politics. Um, but one of the sort of interesting facets of it in Rhode Island was it was a real moment uh, in Rhode Island where people became educated about Rhode Island's own ties to slavery, to you know generational racism. Because I think a lot of times in the Northern states and the Northeastern states, people think that, oh, well, we were on the right side of the Civil War that way, that, therefore, you know, we've always been perfect, right? When that's clearly not the case. And, um, you know, Rhode Island was a was a major hub of the slave trade. Yeah. Weren't you on the reparations, like the reparations um, yeah. commission that Brown, like years and years ago, like I feel like Brown was out in front of it on this, like yeah. came up with this Brown huge U- commission. Yeah. That's right, yeah. No, so Brown, Brown University, you know, when we were there, um, 
Ruth Simmons, who's the president at the time and was a phenomenal leader, uh, you know, a historic leader in academia. Um, yeah, she was awesome. First, yeah, first African American and I believe first woman, second woman to no, lead an Ivy League. No, first woman. Yeah. yeah, first woman and first. Oh no, first maybe color. second. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she created this commission when we were students to investigate Brown's ties uh, to slavery and to make recommendations for how the university could make amends or repair, yeah, um, uh, the oh, wow. damage that was done. It was 2005. It was like way, yeah. it was way before the conversation was really yeah. happening. And I remember it kind of being an out there thing. Like people were like, yeah, we're never going to do reparations. Like that's just never right. going to happen. Yeah. And um, and she got a lot of heat for it. Brown got a lot of heat for it back in the day. Yeah. Back then, yeah. a lot of people, you know, were were very viscerally opposed to even looking at Frenchy, the subject. And so, college. Yeah. Yeah. And so we um, <laughs> no. So and and so we produced uh, a great report that not only in, in like very ex like specific historical detail, you know, explained the when ways Brown that. What, yeah, what Brown had done that literally, you know, slaves had, um, you know, enslaved people had built a university hall, the main building on campus, um, oh, wow. et cetera. And then, you know, had kind of really went deep into the philosophy of, uh, so there's a, there was a philosophy professor on, on the committee, you know, what, what does that mean that our moral obligations are today? And then specifically, how do we do it? Because at the end of the day, yes, Brown has a lot of resources, but Brown, even Brown is not you know, it's not a bank, right? And so how do you think about restorative justice and, mm -hmm. and, you know, making repairs in the context of a university? And so there are a whole series of recommendations that we made, some of which have come to fruition. Some had to do with memorialization, you know, um, building monuments to, you know, um, memorialize and educate people. But then also um, establishing a center for slavery and justice, um, for the study of slavery and justice, which has since happened and is now endowed and um, growing and and does help advance the scholarship of of slavery and, and racism. Uh, and then also building up Brown's relationship with the Providence Public Schools, because it was ultimately determined that uh, for Brown to attempt identify specific individuals today who were descended from those who uh, had a connection with Brown in an enslaved way, you know, generations ago was like virtually impossible. Like the records just didn't exist to find those okay. individuals. Um, and Brown didn't have the resources to do some sort of reparations in a broad based way, but it was ultimately determined that Brown is, you know, is a, uh, an educational institution. Um, has the ability to really partner with the Providence school system and other school systems um, to help advance education in communities of color. And so that's what ended up happening. And the last story I'll tell about that is just credit to Ruth Simmons. Some of the professors on the committee were nervous that our recommendations were a little too explicit, going too far, would cost too much money. So hmm. the original draft, a lot of people don't know this, the original draft was like much more watered down than the final version. And Ruth saw it and stepped in and basically called us to dinner at her house one night and was like, try again, do better. Don't don't anticipate all the reasons that we may not be able to do something. Tell us what you really want to do. And I, Ruth Simmons, will be the one who decides whether or not we can afford to do something. I love it. It was just a great moment. It was a great moment in leadership that, you know, yeah. has stuck with me all these years later. So Yeah, and that's, that's so great. That's also just such a wonderful way to have an actual dialogue about a subject that needs to be talked about. Yeah. And it showed that, like, I mean, unlike a lot of university, like a university president, she was like really invested in like kind of the principles that were like into this. I mean, she raised a shit ton of money for Brown, too. But like uh, yeah. there was uh, but like, yeah, she was really invested in the principles and like no one was talking about this. Like literally, mm -hmm. this was not like some like for yeah. show, like show pony commission or something. It was no. like literally not something that was like on the table and it was kind of a cool thing. Yeah. I'm kind of glad that I forgot that you were I, well, I forgot for a little while that you were on it and that it happened because yeah. it just was like so far ahead of the curve. And for her at the time, I know we have questions, but for her at the time, as one of the few prominent African-American university presidents, you know, in those days, uh, to stick her neck out there when it was controversial, just, I think, I, I think as a young person back then, I didn't fully understand how much courage that took on her part, but it, yeah. it took a lot of guts. 100%. I thought she was awesome. She was always, like, I always just thought the world of her. She was a tremendous president. Yeah. 
Um, okay, Frank has a great question for you and your lovely state of Rhode Island. Uh, Frank, nice to see you. Oh, hold on, you have to unmute you. Sorry, Hello. there you go. Hello, uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, and uh, congratulations, Genevieve, on your uh, promotion to host. I don't think I've been on since uh, since that started. Um, yeah, Thank I'm just curious not to take you off. Oh, you're welcome. Not to take you off the um, uh, the topic of Facebook, but I am curious, particularly with the UN report coming out this week about the plans that Rhode Island has to. Um, uh, related to climate change, particularly, I'm worried about the White Horse, the White Horse Tavern, which is the oldest bar in America, and I really wanted to, you know, make it another four centuries or so. Yeah. Uh, so, if you could talk about that, would be great. Thanks. Wait, Seth, what was the bar that we used to go to where we earned, like, had to drink a hundred beers and then we got like our names in the wall? I have no idea what you're talking about. What are you talking about? Your picture's up in that bar. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, um, okay. <laughs> no, you're talking about, you're talking about pub, Wicked and Pub. Wicked and Pub, yes. Wick Pub. Still okay, there, sorry. Not, not the White Horse Pub. Too, but... Okay, yeah. yes. Anyways. Which is also So, no, I mean, obviously, climate change in Rhode Island is um, we are the ocean state. We are a low lying area. And while it is not actually true that we're 3% smaller at low tide, it feels that way sometimes. And <laughs> high so, tide. High tide. Sorry, high tide, excuse me. Long day. Okay, Seth, don't make me tell the story about how you used to not like seafood. Oh, that has changed. I've done a total 180. I know, I know. Converted, converted. I know, I know. Yeah. Sorry. Um, Yeah, right. That way to end my political career or try to. Yeah. yeah. I know. Um, (laughs) At the ocean state. I know. (laughs) Well, trying to talk about, I gotta be serious. Climate change. So. Yes, climate change. (laughs) Sorry, um, Frank. Yeah, so no, I mean, we're, we're obviously very vulnerable in Rhode Island, right? We're vulnerable to sea level rise. The Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island has risen six inches in the last 30 years. We're vulnerable to extreme weather events. But as a small state, we also have a real opportunity to be a leader. So there's a few things that we're doing. Uh, in 2015, one of the first things that I worked on is creating what is now called the Rhode Island Infrastructure Bank, where we are investing millions and millions of dollars in climate resiliency, like infrastructure upgrades, alternative energy projects across the state. And it's just the beginning, like we need to go bigger, but we're really getting serious about pivoting our infrastructure to prepare for extreme weather and sea level rise. So that's both traditional infrastructure, like raising roads and bridges, um, but also uh, in some cases- In front of the White Horse Tavern? Yeah, exactly. We're just going <laughs> to lift the White House Tavern up on stilts. Um, but no, also, like, but but a lot of I mean, but a lot of the most effective interventions are green interventions, like restoring marshes and sand dunes and things like that, and more green space in urban areas to catch runoff. So we got to go big on climate resiliency. Another very exciting thing happening in Rhode Island that I think we talked about the last time I was on the show is um, we are a leader in offshore wind. And by the end of this decade, offshore wind is going to be uh, close to half of our total electricity use. It's going to come from offshore wind. Um, We think that we can be, yes, we think that we can be 100% renewable electricity in Rhode Island by 2030, like eight years from now. Yeah, predominantly because of offshore wind, but also with solar and some other things. Well, it um, helps that we have 10 people living the whole state. Sorry, just kidding. We have 1.1 <laughs> million. Our census numbers came back higher than expected. But, I'm just um, kidding. Just but no, so an offshore wind, by the way, this is something that, you know, not just for Rhode Island, but the whole East Coast and West Coast has tremendous potential, tremendous economic potential, a lot of jobs. And, well, can you, you know, start it's starting it in Rhode Island. Other, other places? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and so again, right now, there are five offshore wind turbines off the coast of Rhode Island. Uh, we're going to go to 50 um, over the next five or six years. And that alone will get us to uh, over a third of our electricity coming just from offshore wind, uh, which is very, very exciting. Cool. That is really exciting. Um... I still don't know what that means for the White Horse Tavern, but that's okay. I'm been assured that it's going to be put on stilts. Yes. Um, okay, <laughs> uh, Doctor Doom, you are uh, a, a voice. 
and oh, no, yes. no picture, but nice to nice to hear from your ominous presence. Go ahead with your <laughs> question. Uh, thank you. Which question would you prefer? I liked the the minimum wage question. Minimum wage question. One of the one of the questions that I've always had about the the argument for a fifteen dollar uh, minimum wage was why isn't it indexed to the cost of living? That is, in some places, a fifteen dollar wage means something radically different than another part of the country, and yet there's this uniform uh, u- uniform uh, demand for it. It 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 doesn't seem economically uh, economically rational. Yeah, so, you know, I think that what I would say is that the minimum wage should be enough for somebody working full time to live a dignified life, right? Like nobody who works full time uh, should live in poverty. And I think you're correct that that level uh, varies from place to place depending on the cost of living. And so I think you need to have a federal minimum wage as a floor. And that floor, by the way, has not been raised um, since I think the George W. Bush administration or something like that. So it's time to raise that floor for the whole country. But then on top of that, uh, places that have a higher cost of living should have the flexibility to go higher if that's what it makes sense to do. So I, I totally agree with with the premise of your question. Um, but it, I'll, leave yeah. it, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that that's an. I love that question though because I have, that's always also not made sense to me. I, um, Mike Larkey in the in the um, chat brings up that it's politically rational. Like it's also just easier to sell like a, like an even number and like a wage increase like to get people like excited about it, and it does kind of create the floor. Um, yeah, of course, economists would argue that raising a minimum wage raises inflationary cost of living costs in all these other kind of areas, which has like, it's all just kind of a giant circle and it doesn't actually make a huge difference. I mean, that sounds like another yeah. conversation to have for another day. It is a wealth transfer, right? I mean, so, yeah. some people pay more through inflation and other people get more through a higher real wage. So that's, yeah. that is yeah, kind no, of the point. David Botts. I'm trying to un. There you go. Oh, god damn it! Sorry. <laughs> uh. By the way, Seth, you're in luck because I can't find any of my pictures from college on this computer. Sorry. Ha. Oh, you've been. Have you been like furiously looking this whole time? Yes. That's what I've been doing when I look like I'm not paying attention. I've been like trying, going through all of my files, trying to find them. Anyways, you don't have any like any of my Facebook user data that you can. You asked me to delete it, and I, I am a good person, and I deleted it from Facebook. Sorry. Hi, David. Okay. Sorry. Hi. <laughs> nice to see you. Oh, good to see you. Uh, so, uh, Seth, uh, congratulations on you on the name change. I I think it's it's a it's a huge deal, yep. and uh, and I, I appreciate your state's actions to bring about um, some justice slowly, but you're making progress. So that's good. Um, my question is: Is Rhode Island a party to the Sackler opioid settlement? And do you have an opinion on the S family, which I think I think is a good name for them? Um, Avoiding criminal liability, which I think is, I think it's terrible. Yeah. Are you familiar with this, by the way, Seth? I am. I will say, however, it's not, um, it's not our office that is representing the state and that is the state attorney general. And so I need to defer to him and his judgment. um, Because I know that there is, um, even among the parties on that suit, I know there's some disagreement around what to settle for and what concessions to make in, in return. But Rhode Island is part of this, the negotiations. We are, yeah. we are. And I am not in that room, so I'm going to be you know, careful in what I say. I don't want to undercut our attorney general in any way. Um, but clearly, um, clearly, again, the people who were running the company, who you know were involved in the day-to-day, uh, knew the impact that they were having, the tremendous negative impact that they were having. Uh, did not take adequate action fast enough, and a lot of people died as a result, and it's terrible. And 
so I hope that all of the AGs, including ours, continue to stand strong as I believe ours is. Um, I can't find any embarrassing pictures of you, but I can bring on a guest who proposed an amazing, amazing question. Uh, Ducks with Pants, as we know him, also is E.G. Phillips, who has written the theme song for In Lua Fun, um, has a question for you regarding um, the great state of Rhode Island. Yes, I was wondering if you could sing a couple bars of the Rhode Island State song for us and also address the issue as to why it is not uh, Rhode Island is famous for you as sung by Blossom Jerry. Uh, I, the answer is no, I, can't, I will not. And the... <laughs> Damn it! And, <laughs> but, but, you know, you on your second question, you make a good point. You make a good point. It probably, like, we may need to look at changing that. Because I feel like I feel like if you ask most people what Rhode Island song was, they would think that that was it. Do you know what it is? I don't know what it is. I'm terrible. I mean, I'm, I I'm looking like... at the the, the the lyrics now because I, I figured. When was it written, E.G.? Give me a hint. Um, when when was? Uh, now I have to look at the history. So I mean, it was sung by a local comedian, Charles Hall. Uh, wrote a few yeah, problems. Yeah. Was this like 1742 yeah. or something? I don't even. No, Charlie Hall's still around. He's he's still he's still that. So that must be that's recent. Oh really? I mean, <laughs> it does have the lyric "Rhode Island or Rhode Island surrounded by the sea." So that may just become increasingly true, um, <laughs> given the climate situation. So maybe maybe you should keep it. <laughs> not, Rhode Island is not actually an island yet. Nah, yeah, that's a good, yeah, keeping Rhode Island not an island. That should be your, like your bumper sticker. Like, <laughs> that's true. We're working on that. EG, thanks. Um, so uh, to close out, Rhode Island is famous for a few things. Uh, coffee milk. Please explain coffee milk to everyone. What is this magic? It's, it's exactly what it sounds like. It is, it's like chocolate, you know, chocolate milk. It's like yeah. chocolate milk, except it's coffee flavored. It's coffee milk. It's and like that. Does it have caffeine? We were, yes. And when it's we like were a kids, syrup. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Imagine like coffee syrup in a, in milk. They had That's it in. The, it was like the two percent, the skim, and then like in like the dining hall at like yep. Ratty and Brown. Then it was a coffee milk. When I was a kid in elementary school, like in the, in public schools in Rhode Island, like at lunchtime, your choice was like white milk, chocolate milk, and coffee milk. And there's always like a big race to get in, all the kids to get in line for because like obviously the first choice was the chocolate milk and that always went the fastest and then most of us got the white milk but if you were like stuck in the back of line you had to drink the coffee milk and none of the kids wanted the coffee milk i would have been a coffee milk kid i have been stealing coffee since i was like two did you like, like did you like like coffee ice cream what kind of person no are you? no 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 i don't like okay. coffee ice cream because ice cream should be pure and not related to anything else <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm also not I know it's it doesn't make any sense. But uh, <laughs> that's so amazing. The, uh, the other thing is Dell's lemonade, which I yes. have to say yeah. is disappointing in revisiting which, it. Uh it's not disagree. hard enough. I also I have a, I also have a picture of it in my office. Should I can I show you real quick? Of uh, Dell's lemonade? Uh, Dell's and <laughs> beer. Oh, oh okay. so that was the other thing. Narragansett beer, which is bottled in Rochester, as you know, canned in Rochester. Uh, by the Genesee Brewing Company. Yeah. Don't make that face. Uh, and, uh, but, okay, if you had to give up one of those three beverages, oh. which would it be, Seth? Narragansett uh, beer, coffee milk, or Dell's lemonade? I mean, I, coffee milk, because I'm not 80 years old. We do 80 year olds drink coffee milk. Is that the brand? It's like, I think pastis. That's a, I, it's like pastis, but for Rhode Island. <laughs> like. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I you know, I can't give up my Gansett. And, yeah. And, Dell's. <laughs> and especially in the summer, you can't, you know, Dell's is, yeah. Does so, and you can mix them together in the summer and make a nice little shandy. Does the Narragansett have they a, do make a Dell, They do make a Dell's. They make a Narragansett Dell's shandy. Um, I haven't seen a blueberry one. It's possible, but I haven't seen it. We just opened a Narragansett brewery in Providence for the first time. Oh. It's, it's, more, it's more of like a brew pub, but next time you're in town, check it out. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, it's been so fun catching up. Um, I appreciate you not being able to work your computer 
uh, well enough to <laughs> further embarrass me. Did that I will not just work? Delete you. Oh no, it worked. Oh, oh, it worked, but just for a limited time before I like. I will X you out, Seth Magaziner. If you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Go. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> oh my god! You're the absolute. It's very nice to join you all. Nice oh to meet my you, god! Jenny. Everyone now has a perfect nice view of this nostril for like the rest <laughs> of. Life. I'm shooting for, I'm shooting for, I'm not bottom three. Like, I want to be at least bottom five in lieu of, in lieu of fun views for this episode. Well, I'm very much looking forward to, like, some scandal happening in Island and everyone watching all of these at once and them rocketing to, to the top, right? <laughs> so, I'll see what I can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah just get on that. Um, but, yeah, really glad that we're not plunged into the disaster that we, uh, economically, that we thought we were headed for last time you were on the show. This is a much more yep. optimistic way to be on. Um, I think we were just like looking back at that. We were so scared and we had no idea what was going on and everything just felt so like, I don't know, just totally yeah. like unknown, like from the, from the virus to the vaccine future to the, the economy, government. the government. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. For the election. Yeah. No, for 2020, good riddance for 2020. Yeah, but, totally. Yeah. But, you know, be safe, everybody. Get your shot. Wear your mask yeah. inside. Um, I will. Thanks. Yes, I yeah. will do that. Not in my home, but you yeah. get the idea. <laughs> Thank I'll you for you having later. me. It's yeah. an honor to be back. Thank you. We will be back 23 hours and 22 hours. 23 hours. 22. 20. 22. 23. Twenty-three and no, no, yeah, yeah, whatever. No, we'll be back tomorrow. At yes. Time. <laughs> Do the math <sighs> with Tom Nichols, uh, who will be playing "Where's the Lie" and spinning a yarn for all of you. Um, if you have not had the pleasure of uh, seeing Mr. Tom Nichols in person, sometimes Carla, his life-saving. Do you know his cat saved his life, Seth? No, really. Yeah. Oh yeah. Does cat dial nine one one or something? Uh, what was it? What, it was like he was fire. Oh yeah, it was a fire. Yeah. That was right. There was a fire in the house, and the cat like it had just started, and like the alarms didn't go off, and the cat like jumped on him and started scratching him and woke them up, and they got out of the house in time. It was like, yeah, it was kind of amazing. Uh, but he has a great Twitter feed, and he is a very funny, very fun guy to hang out with. And uh, we will be back tomorrow uh, to, when I can do math. But right now I'm just exhausted. So <laughs> I'll see you later. Bye, friend. Thank you.